Amen. Thank you for your singing. And before we open the scriptures, I'd like us to pray for a moment. As we pray, we have uh, cause for petition, but also for thanksgiving. And uh, we've got some newcomers, and David and Dehan just moved here from Martinsville, Virginia. We were talking today and discovered that today is their 40th anniversary, so we are happy for you all. Would you just rate, like do this right here? David and Dehan just moved here. He'll be working with the Association of Gospel Churches, which credentials chaplains in our armed services, and so they do a great work. Uh, even as part of the missions committee this past Wednesday, I was interviewing a chaplain in Wiesbaden, Germany, and found in the middle of the interview, uh, as they were seeking to be part of Reformed Baptist Network, that in fact they're going with AGC, which is the organization that David will be working with. Also of note this morning, in case you didn't meet her, Leah Marley was here, married to Chris, three children, pastor of Miller Valley Baptist Church in Prescott, Arizona. She's a daughter of Grace and Aaron Farrier's, I think little sister, I'm not sure. Yeah, little sister. Thank you. So we're so happy to see her. Um, And then uh, Joe Totes and Liz Lynch. Can you guys just go like that real quickly? Next Saturday, they will come together in marriage, and we're very thankful and happy uh, at that good news for you all. We rejoice in God's kindness to you both. And then as we pray, I'd like us to remember Jeremy Bolden for the third time. He has COVID, and as you can imagine, that's just uh, just the, the fear, the anxiety that, that uh, he and Sarah might be tempted to. So let's Let's go to the Lord and give thanks, but also lift up our request to him. Your love, our Father, is our reward. And we pray that we might, with all sincerity, be able to say what we've sung, that Christ is mine forevermore, and that that would be our greatest joy. And we thank you that as we come tonight, gathered as your people, that we have the scriptures, and we have the spirit of the living, risen, reigning, and ruling King Jesus to help us to mediate his presence and we thank you for such a savior we thank you this morning for the mercies of seeing Leah and the love uh, and joy that she and Chris have in their marriage and their ministry in Arizona thank you for their lives thank you for preserving them thank you for giving David and Dee these 40 years of marriage and bringing them to Greenville And we pray that their marriage might ever be a picture of Christ and his church. We thank you too for Joe and for Liz and that in your kindness that you've brought them to each other and giving them the gift of marriage again. And we pray now that as they come together in marriage, their lives might be making continual statements 
about this drama of Christ and the pursuit and capture by his heart of a bride that's his very own. We pray that their marriage would do that and their wedding would do that next Saturday. Lord, we too pray this morning, this evening for Jeremy and for Sarah that you would comfort their hearts and that fear would be supplanted by faith and that they would be embracing all your rich promises that you are the one that has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I pray that those words at the end of the song we just sang would be especially close and resonating for them this week that Christ is theirs forevermore. We pray that he might get better. We pray that he would respond to treatment. And we pray that in um, that they might be on our heart and that we might be interceding for them faithfully. Thank you for hearing us. Be with us now as we open the word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, tonight, we've come to truly holy ground. We've come to what most people know as and call the Ten Commandments, and you might call them the Ten Words, the word uh, in Hebrew for, uh, the Hebrew word for word is also the same for matter, for a thing, something that's significant. So it's legitimate as we read that God spoke all these words, Dabarim or Dabarim, to speak of these not only as the Ten Commandments, but the Ten Words. In many public buildings, you can still find these Ten Laws divinely given to Israel at Mount Sinai. You can find them memorialized, often in quite visible and prominent locations, but their numbers are shrinking. But I think we would be foolish we would be presumptive really to presume or to assume that every person is familiar with these Ten Commandments or that even every Christian can recite them with confidence. Oftentimes, when we're giving a devotional at the gym on Tuesdays or Thursdays, I've found that if I reference one of the Ten Commandments, I often get a look that says, that communicates, I'm not really familiar with that commandment. And this is why we're going to open up, we're going to exposit just one commandment per week and seek to memorize that one commandment at the same time. So kids, what is the first commandment? Okay, let's say it together. You shall have no other gods before me. So I'd like us now to open up our copy of God's Word, page 61, if you're grabbing the Pew Bible, and we'll turn to Exodus chapter 20. And I think, kids, you ought to know that you can also find uh, the re-giving of this, the restating of this also in Deuteronomy 5. Tonight, and I think some of these in the series may feel more like teaching than preaching, but we pray that by God's grace, we'll proclaim Christ faithfully through it. So please turn to Exodus chapter 20 and I want you to see that as we look at our our text, our focus is one through three, Uh, 
in verses 1 and 2 contain what we can call the prologue of the Ten Commandments, and then the Ten Commandments themselves in verses 3 through 17. But I want us not to skip over the prologue, because it frames our entire understanding of the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments. So follow me now as I read uh, the text, as I read What I'd like to read tonight is just actually through uh, verse 11, through what we'd call the prologue and the first four commandments or the first tablet of the law. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the Sabbath day. On the seventh day, therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord, Isaiah says in Isaiah 40, endures forever. Well, this first tablet of the law contains the first four commandments of the moral law. Now, I can't find within the Bible that it distinctly says the first four are on the first tablet and the last six are on the second. We know that the law was given by God on two tablets, but we speak of it this way. We give a natural division to the law, the first four on one tablet and the second, the the next six, the final six on the second. And these summarize, these first, this first tablet, the first four commandments, they teach and they tell us the obedience that God requires of us toward him. Think of them as establishing our vertical obedience. And we find those in verses 3 through 11. And so because we're going to spend, we're going to be in very, a very small text over these 10 sermons, we're going to introduce and we're going to borrow some from the catechism. We're going to borrow from the Westminster Confession of Faith. We're going to see how Paul speaks of the relationship to law and grace and law and faith in weeks ahead, but we're not going to do all that 
in one sermon. We're going to do that progressively over these 10 weeks. So the first four, the first tablet, they establish our vertical obedience, our relationship to God. The second tablet of the law contains the final six commandments of the moral law. These summarize, that is they teach or tell us the obedience that God requires of us toward our neighbor, or more specifically, both within our family with the fifth commandment, and then towards our neighbor in the last five commandments. And we want to think then of this second tablet as establishing the horizontal obedience that God requires of us. All the law is summed up in this virtue that we call love, where we desire and seek and speak and do all things for the benefit of the other in covenant relationship. We obey or keep his law or his commandments because our first and chief end as men and women and children is to glorify God and enjoy him utterly and completely forever. And so we meditate upon and care for and obediently keep those four special commandments inscribed by the finger of God on the first tablet. And in case you're not familiar with it, at the end of Exodus 31, Moses writes this. He says, and he gave to Moses, that is God, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And this is what Jesus meant when he drew out this description of the great commandment in the law from the Pharisee who was a lawyer by profession. And this is from Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. And the lawyer answered correctly. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 6. Here it is. I got it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And this is profoundly, and this is only the response of a renewed heart to God's amazing grace. It can be no other. And this is what Jesus had in mind when that same lawyer offered this as the boiled down essence of the second tablet of the law. And he said, a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And there in Matthew's gospel, the lawyer quoting from Deuteronomy 6 and then Leviticus 19 is pulling together, placing these two tablets, all ten commandments, four vertically oriented, six horizontally oriented. He's pulling them all together as the sum of that obedience that God requires of us. And like obedience and then to the first tablet of the law, our vertical obedience, our horizontal obedience, that which we're to give to our neighbor is also profoundly and is only the response of a renewed heart to God's amazing, redeeming, rescuing, reconciling, forgiving, and transforming grace 
through the power of the gospel. It can be no other. And now we're going to come to the prologue of the Ten Commandments there. And I want you to look, focus for a moment on those first two verses of our text. You see, someone remarked to me yesterday morning at our men's breakfast. He said, grace before law. And and so here's our axiom. Grace will always and must always precede law. You see, you cannot forget, we must not forget as we transition from this covenant renewal in chapter 19 to covenant law in chapter 20, we must not forget that the law was given to a redeemed people. Its function was not to serve as an instrument of their redemption or even their justification, but rather to govern their lives, to direct their sanctification, lives set apart to display the glory of God to the nations of the world. And if you remember anything tonight, it is that under the new covenant, grace will always can only and must always precede law. Our obedience to the law is our proper response to the grace of God or God's grace towards us. Our redeemed response, not our efforts to earn it. Because the very definition of grace is that it must be what? It's unearned. Otherwise, grace is not grace. You and I can do nothing to earn God's grace. His grace and favor are his to give as he pleases. If one baseball team scores seven runs and the other scores five, their win was merited. It's not gratuitous that the umpire or the league grants the victory to the team with seven. They scored more runs. Not so with grace. And so no Christian... And you and I will never point our finger to God and say, you got it right, God. I deserved your grace the whole time. I'm glad you finally saw how deserving I was. It was Paul that wrote in Galatians 3, verse 16. He said, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because Paul says, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. In fact, in Romans 3, verse 20, he expresses it a different way. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since the law, through the law, comes the knowledge of sin. And this is the point of the prologue to the Ten Commandments. This is the essence of these two verses that capture both God's identity and his redeeming work on behalf of his covenant people. So as you think about the prologue there in the first, in the first two verses of Exodus 20, I want us to think of these verses as as giving us the historical and the covenantal context of the Ten Commandments of the moral law. It's all the children of Israel needed to know at the moment that Yahweh would speak all these words and his very finger would etch the laws on the two tablets to govern their lives and the lifestyle of his covenant people. Now, you know how this works. Let me illustrate this. 
if someone comes up to you and they give you hard counsel, a difficult admonition, maybe unsolicited advice, and it is just flying all over you like you did not want to hear it. It's like the wrong time, wrong day. And, then, and you're giving them that look like, man, why are you telling me this? But then they look at you and they say, and you know, you know I love you. And you know they do. And in that moment, by establishing the covenantal relationship between them and you, that eases the edge, it puts a radius on, it puts a softness, a gentleness, a greater value on what would otherwise seem very hard and unwanted. That's the covenantal context of the prologue, right? That's what it is. His unique identity answers the who of the prologue. He says, I am the Lord your God. Did you know that almost 190 times in the Old Testament, you'll find that phrase, I am the Lord. But also 42 times we find this fuller phrase, I am the Lord your God, first in Exodus 67, and then 41 times after that. And I don't want you to gloss over those two words, I am. I had forgotten this. But in the Hebrew, this is very emphatic. Most of the time, the personal pronoun I is simply ani, A-N-I. But rarely and emphatically, it's anoki, anoki. And here it's that. It's the most emphatic I that we could use in any introduction. And let me give you an example. Let's say we had a lineup here of women. And there's like a women's conference. And there's all these women, these ladies, and they're discussing the book Lies Women Believe. Is anyone familiar with that book? Okay. And the author is, can we just call her Nancy DeMoss for the moment? I know she's married, but I can't say her last name. Okay. And we're, we're talking, we're asking all these women going across the lineup, and, and, and we're saying, okay, and who are you? And then we finally get to this one woman, and we say, and we've been, the ladies have been discussing this book, and you say, and some, the, the moderator says, and who are you? And she says, I am Nancy DeMoss. I wrote this book that we've been discussing. And it would completely change our perception and response to her. So with Yahweh himself in this prologue, this is the starting point of his identity. I am. But the next four words complete that identity. I am Yahweh, your God. And that makes sense in the first commandment why he says you shall have no other gods before me because you already have me. You already have me. Do you see how the Lord is all capital letters in your Bible? You see that, right? Sometimes you see a capital L a little O, R, and D. But when you see that in all caps, it's the, the name that stands for the divine name by the name Yahweh or Yahweh. It's the same name that God used when he revealed himself to Moses in the midst of the burning bush in Exodus 3. All right? 
and we may also express it as Yahweh. Now, to be fair, because Moses wrote Genesis, all through the book of Genesis, you see Lord in capital L-O-R-D, but it's not until you get to Exodus 3 and Moses on the backside of the mountain taking care of Jethro's flock that God comes forth with this name. Basically, when Moses is saying, God, I'm nobody, and God is saying to Moses, when he says, when Moses is like, I don't even know your name. So when, they, when you send me back to get and rescue your people and they see, who is this God? Though you think you're nobody, I am somebody and I'm gonna tell you who I am. I am who I am. That's my name. It's the special, proper, and personally revealed covenant name of God by which he made himself known to Moses and to the people of Israel, by which he says, I am who I am, or by which the people may say, he is who he is. And he adds this to Moses in Exodus 3 and verse 15. He says, this is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So we see in the prologue not only his unique identity and how it answers the who of the prologue. But we might ask, what's the what of the prologue? And we see his unique work of redemption here. It's so simple, it's summarized. He says, this is who I am. I am the Lord your God, and this is what I've done. It was I who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And we saw this in weeks past, that grammatically what God is, it's more than simply you came out. I caused you to come out, all right? It's like, you know when you're wondering one of your doorbells rings and you look out and you can't see anybody and maybe it's a, neighbor, a neighborhood kid that ran up and ran, rang the doorbell and ran away and you're wondering who was it that rang the doorbell? Well, the idea here is God is saying, I brought you out. Hey, I, I did it. It was by my powerful right hand, I brought you out. And there's more than simply geographical displacement here. There's rescue, there's redemption out of the powerful, out of the bondage and the oppressive, powerful hand of Pharaoh. And it says it all. It's the briefest description of what God has done for his people in fulfillment of his promises. Do you remember all those promises in Exodus 6? Verses six through eight, he said, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, and with great acts of judgment, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give you to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. All those promises, all of those I wills, they're summarized here in the what of the prologue. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You know how often today we're commitment averse Sometimes we don't say, I promise, I will. People like to say, would you like 
Can we get together sometime? We might be able to do that. No, God says, I will. And when he says, I will, it's as sure as I have. Let's now look at this commandment itself briefly. And I want us to see the inherent priority in the first commandment. I don't know if you've noticed, it's only eight, only eight words in the English. But there's a priority to it. You shall have no other gods before me. Notice how short it is in length. Yes, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, or four words each. But notice its brevity and length. Notice its simplicity and expression. And by simple, we don't mean simple in meaning or application. It's like hitting a baseball at 100 miles an hour is simple in principle, but very difficult in execution. There's great breadth to what's required by this commandment. There's great breadth to what's forbidden by this commandment. But we say there's a great priority to it, something very, very important. Doesn't it make sense why God gave this as the first commandment? If he's establishing the terms of Israel's relationship with him and what would govern their conduct, he is their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Doesn't it make sense that this very first word has governing priority? In fact, Moses will repeat this commandment in Deuteronomy 5 and verse 7. In both cases, the Hebrew text is identical. It's unchanged in both places. Now, kids, as you listen, if I can have your eyes for a minute, I want you to understand that a commandment with the words you shall not is what we call a prohibition. That's a big word, sorry. It's a you shall not. It's a you must not. You can't do this, all right? Off limits. Something you're forbidden from doing. This is a very strong you shall not hear, as are are most of the Ten Commandments. It's like you could add this phrase, under no circumstances shall you have any other God before me. You'll notice that eight of the Ten Commandments are negative. They're prohibitions. They begin with these three words, you shall not. It's only the fourth and fifth commandments or what we call positive commandments. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. And I want to illustrate the importance and the rightness of negative commandments, of prohibition, all right? Don't look at God as some negative person in heaven. He's not. But if your parents say, never get in a car with a stranger, that is a command. And it's a prohibition, something you are forbidden from doing. Maybe some of you know you cannot turn on the stove or try to cook a full-blown meal unless mom and dad are there with you. Maybe you have that rule in your house, okay? God is not just making a suggestion Or giving an idea here. He's telling us something we must absolutely not do. It is something we must say is off limits or is not allowed. And that is true for the second, the third, 
The sixth, the seventh, the eighth, the ninth, and the tenth commandments. Only the fourth and the fifth are represented or introduced in positive language. And this is all from grace. This is all for our good. And this is all for God's glory. So how is this first commandment of priority? What priority does it highlight? It highlights that there is but one eternal, true, and living God. And to be fair, the context of post-Egyptian world that the Hebrew people, the Israelites were living, was polytheistic, many gods, kind of like the all roads lead where? To Rome, okay? But the God who made heaven and earth and everything in it is the one true, holy, rightfully jealous God who is omniscient, who knows all things, who is omnipresent, who, whose presence is everywhere so that nothing escapes his notice or his presence, and who is omnipotent, whose power is out without limit. He is the God who is sufficient unto himself. He's in no need of anyone or anything and who from long ages past, from eternity, has been entirely satisfied in himself as the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, loving, communing, delighting in unseen fellowship from eternity. There has never been a moment where you would have gone up, if you could, and tapped God and said, how are you doing? And he said, I'm bored. One God, three persons. This is the Trinity. This is the monotheism, the one God teaching of Scripture. And in a world where there are apparently endless and many paths for a person to find satisfaction in this life, a world of polytheism and multiculturalism, the Scriptures say... You shall have no other gods before or besides me. In Deuteronomy 6, Yahweh says this, what we call the great Shema of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And in the same chapter, I think around verse 13, Deuteronomy 6, he says, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. God does not play. He brooks no rivals. And brooks means he doesn't tolerate any competition for the hearts of his people. Even in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus aligns his teaching with this exclusive focus of our lives, whom we will worship, whom we will adore, whom we will give the unreserved affection of our hearts, and that is to God and to his ways alone. And we find this in the Sermon on the Mount language that has its roots in this very thinking. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added by you. 
And he says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. And I want to just pause for a minute. And for you guys that are like in your teens, just a few of you, and our kids. The world is constantly trying to squeeze you into its mold. It's trying to make you think that unless you dress a certain way and you wear clothes of a certain style or you eat or shop at certain places or you own this or you have this or that or you travel in this way or that or you have jobs or titles like A, B, and C that unless you have those things you'll not enjoy a fulfilled life. And let me remind you of the, the proverb, the axiom, the one who said that inside of us is this God-shaped vacuum. And like Augustine said, he said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. It's the reason Jesus has made this simple, not easy. Seek first as a matter of priority, the kingdom of God. Enter by the narrow gates. God wants all of us, but that he desires us to only want all of him, to give him exclusive worship, to give him our affection, to give him our service and our love. Even as an application to marriage, brothers and sisters, And I think men, we struggle with this more when we yearn for our wives' respect. We long for our wives' respect. And not to say that that's not a legitimate desire, but the thing that we ought to long for more than anything is that our wives' greatest respect, the greatest affection of their hearts is for Jesus Christ, their bridegroom. And if if Jesus has our wives' hearts, it's very likely that we will have them as well. I want to close. Track with me. The first table of the law, the first commandment. You'll notice I only mention moral law. In coming weeks, we'll mention ceremonial law and civil law. We're not going to do that all at one time. There's the commandment. Eight words. Simple in expression, brief in length. You shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment of four that are vertical in orientation. So I ask you this question tonight. Do you find God's law restrictive and oppressive or borrowing from Psalm 19 verses 7 through 11? Do you find it perfect? Do you find it reviving? Do you find it sure? Do you find it making you wise? Do you find it righteous? Do you find it rejoicing, causing your heart to rejoice? Do you find it pure? Do you find it enlightening your eyes? If so, then you and David would have been nodding to each other as he penned Psalm 19. Did you know as you look at these commandments that they're all in the singular? And so as a singular, there's a sense in which they captured the whole of Israel. But they're to be soberly received as though when you read that, it's legitimate to read 
that the you is not you all, but it's you. And so as you look around the room, you understand that whether my name is Ray or, or Wesley or Rich, it doesn't matter, or Heidi, that this word, this commandment is for our attention. This commandment is for our obedience. And by that idea of you as a person of one, we cannot escape the scrutiny of his word. So I ask you tonight, are you and no other gods besides him person? Or if you're honest, does your heart act like an Airbnb for lots of other things? You know, just open and ready and welcoming for all types of things that can capture your heart. For lots of innocent and not so innocent other idols. Kids, do you know that a good thing can become a bad thing when it becomes an all too important thing and then moves from being a good thing to a bad thing? I love soccer. Levi, you love soccer. Yeah. Soccer's a great thing when it's in its right place, right? When it's a game, it's a sport. I love college football. I love fishing and hunting. I love travel. Good things of themselves. Terrible things when they become an all too important thing. If you're honest, is there anything that is too important to you that's taken over first place in your heart? Is it the approval of a friend? Is it the approval of a boss? Is it the approval of a mate? It might be innocent, right? You fill in the blank, fishing, sports, music, politics, food, exercise, your appearance, stuff, financial security, your future, your education. You fill it in. Yahweh says, without wavering, I am first. And I will tolerate no rivals to the affections of your heart that belong only to me. This only comes through the gift of a new heart. Only new and spirit-repaired hearts will cry to the Lord for mercy and grace. I want us to close to think, and as we close, to think about two mountains. There's Mount Sinai. And there on Sinai, God by his very own finger engraved the ten words on two tablets of stone. But Mount Sinai points to and is eclipsed by another mountain. And that's Zion. There was that first covenant, we can call it the old covenant, and now the new covenant that God says in Jeremiah 31 in verse 33. There's an engraving of the law that's altogether different than what took place at Sinai. It's the engraving on the new mountain on Zion. This is what God says. He says, those days are coming, declares the Lord. This is in Jeremiah 31, 31. When I will make a new covenant 
with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sin no more. And a lot of times we do not read this. But if you have Jeremiah 31 open to this. And I want to finish by reading 35 through 37. If you've never really noticed this. When he said I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord who gives a sun for light by day. In the fixed order of the moon. And the stars for light by night. Who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. So God is speaking of things that are certain. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. And the point is, that it's impossible for me to do that because they're my people. Their names are engraven on my hands and my law is engraven on their hearts. The first commandment is a commandment of priority. It reminds us that in him there is life, there is hope. It's from him that we breathe and move and have our very being. And so that he may say to us in establishing not our conduct in our life that we might earn his favor, but as those who've received it all of grace. You shall have no other gods besides me.